be seated. If you will join me now in taking your copy of God's Word, and we turn back together to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and we will come back together to our passage in chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, Acts 1, 4 through 11, as we continue our series in this book of the Bible. And this is our passage for last Lord's Day, and we, we looked at it to think through uh, the ascension of Christ and how uh, vital it is to our faith, how, how formative it is to our doctrine, to our theology, and, and so much so that we confess it every week in the Apostles' Creed. It's vital. It's, it's, it's a part, uh, an integral part of our faith and theology, and we find that blessings come in the economy of the Trinity of God Blessings come from the ascended position of Jesus Christ because he ascended to sit in the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he is head over the church. It's from that position that he showers blessings upon his church and upon his people. And so this week we're going to come back to this passage to use it as a starting point to look at the topic of revival. Now, we have prayed for revival here from the pulpits. We have prayed for revival on Wednesday evenings. We have heard about revival. There's, uh, there's, one that's, uh, there's one, uh, something taking place right now that's being described as revival, as we'll talk about in a moment. But as we see in the book of Acts, as we will see as we go, as we go through this idea, this topic this morning, there are ideas, there's a structure to revival. There are markers to it. And not just for us to look at and say, that's a true revival and that isn't. It's not for us to always be pointing fingers. But for us to look at revival in scripture and we pray for it for ourselves. And we pray for it for our church. And we pray for it for our community. We, as God's people, need to be revived. His church needs to be revived. This community needs to be revived. And so we want to look at this as we want to with with all scripture, not looking at someone else saying, this is for you. But for us to listen to it and go, oh Lord, feed me by your word. Feed me by your truth. Let's do that this morning by opening our time here together in prayer. Lord, we pray now that you would open our hearts and you would open our minds so that we would hear your word and believe it. And that hearing and believing, we would receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. To receive and rest upon him as he's been offered to us in your word. Do this, we pray, O Lord, in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, who is grace, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, and we will stand together for the reading of God's word. And while staying with them, he ordered them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things that they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And the grass withers, and flowers fade, but the word of our God indeed stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So it was just a little under a month ago, it was February 8th, when students at Asbury College, which is a private Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky, it's a college that's aligned with the Wesleyan Methodists, but on that, on that February 8th, the students at this college gathered for their weekly chapel meeting. It was a usual Wednesday morning for them. And part of their usual routine was that they would gather in the campus chapel for their weekly chapel service. And it was going as it normally does. There was uh, singing, there was praying. The, the local pastor stood up and he preached from Romans chapter 12. And his sermon was exhorting the student body there that they were to live lives that were marked by the standards set forth in that passage, Romans 12. Specifically, that they are called to love with perfect love. Not a love that's been polluted, not a hypocritical love, not a perverted love, but they are to love with the love of Christ as they have been loved by Christ. His concluding point, kind of his sentence, or his period to end it all, was that this love demanded by these verses wasn't possible in their own power. He said to them, you cannot love until you're loved by Jesus. We love because God first loved us. And if you want to become love in action, then you have to know the love of God first. Now, by all accounts, there is nothing remarkable about the sermon. Matter of fact, the pastor said it wasn't even near his best sermon. It's just something he kind of just got through. He ended his message, there was a hymn, there was a prayer, and the chapel meeting was over with. So as usual, students began to get up and make their way out of the chapel. But not all of them. Some of the students stayed in their place. Some began to pray by themselves. Some began to gather in groups to pray with each other. Some began to sing songs and, 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 and hymns. And as they did this, more students started coming back to participate in this. And soon faculty and staff from the college joined in. And this continued on for days, 24 hours a day. There was some contingent of, of students and faculty and staff in the chapel who were, who were hearing the word uh, taught, who were singing, who were, who were praying. And then college students from around the nation began to come and participate. And then as they left, they went back to their colleges and some of those colleges, the same thing began to happen. And the other people began driving upwards to, to 10 hours to be there. And this was very quickly labeled a revival. That revival was taking place at this little private Christian college in Kentucky. But as quickly as it was labeled a revival... There began, began, there began to, to be discussions. What is a revival? Is what's happening there a true revival? 
How do we know if a revival is true? How do we know if it's legitimate? And of course, because we are in the 21st century and we have social media, as with any sort of these discussions, we find there's plenty of opinions out there. A lot of opinions about the legitimacy of what's happening there. Now, I want to be very quick to say this. I haven't been there. I don't even know where Wilmore, Kentucky is. I know it's in Kentucky. I don't even know what part of Kentucky is in. I haven't experienced firsthand what's happening. So I don't, I don't have an informed opinion on it. I haven't been there. I've read reports from people who've gone. I've read pieces from people who haven't been there. I've read stories of people who are very pro this is a revival. I've read stories from people who have suspicions on it. I haven't been there. So I want to be careful in what I say. And really what I mean by that is what we're going to talk about this morning isn't Asbury. It's a way for us to introduce the topic. But to be even more bluntly honest, I care about what's happening out there, but I care more about what's happening here. And so I I want us to think through the topic of revival through the lens of Scripture. I want us to start with Acts as we go to the Old Testament. But I want us to think about it so we can think about how we can be prayerful about revival. How we can be prayerful about revival for ourselves, for our church, for other churches, and for our community. This isn't about Asbury. This is about Bethel. So Kevin DeYoung, who's pastor of Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina, he's also a professor at RTS Charlotte, wrote a really good article on this. And and so uh, I'm using that as a guide for us this morning. He makes really good points, and I want to use those. But if you want some more fleshed out thoughts, I encourage you to go online and, and read his article. But I think we need to begin with the question of, of what is a revival? If you've lived in this area long enough, you, you've driven out around and you've seen homemade signs that says, uh, such and such local church is having a revival this coming week, uh, starting at such and such a time. Uh, you may remember reading about revivals from history. You may have even gone to revival. You may have heard churches uh, scheduling revivals, as we just said. But, but the question remains is, what is a revival? Well, what is it? What is it these people are advertising? What's, what's being labeled as a revival? What is a revival? Well, if we're talking about something that has to do with God, then of course we want to come back to the Bible and say, okay, what's the Bible tell us about it? Well, interestingly, the Bible never uses the word revival. It's not a part of the language of Scripture. We don't go through the book of Acts and read about uh, the revival of Jerusalem. Uh, we don't go through the, uh, the book of Hebrews and read about the revival of the people of, uh, of Israel. It's not a part of the language of Scripture. But God's word does detail different instances in the life of God's people where this sudden and surprising change takes place. And it takes place through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what we know as revival. What we've labeled as revival. But the Bible does talk about that. It says there are indeed times where God's people uh, were suddenly and, and surprisingly changed through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's an important distinction for us to keep in mind. That this change, this revival, isn't manufactured by the sheer willpower of God's people. And so at the risk of stepping on toes, let me say it this way, you can't schedule revival. 
You can't say on June 10th through 17th, God is going to visit us in such a distinct way. We're going to call this revival. It will start at 6 p.m. every night. We'll end by about 7 or 7.30 and there will be ice cream afterwards. Man does not manufacture revival. It comes from above. It's a divine work. It's done in and through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible is very clear on that. Now people are used as instruments in this work. But this work is done by the Holy Spirit. So we can talk about revival. We can talk about it as an awakening our renewal, our reformation. But the common thread for all this is that there have been times throughout history, beginning in the Bible and going through history, where God, who normally works by ordinary ways, chooses to work in extraordinary ways. There's times he, he, he normally works in these ordinary ways, but there's times he chooses to work in ways that are extraordinary or extraordinary. But here's the thing. We as Christians get really impressed by the extraordinary work. That's what gets the articles. That's what gets the headlines. That's what gets the tweets. That's what gets the social media going. Is those extra, extraordinary ways. We're very impressed by that. And I think we can be so focused on that and so impressed on that that we overlook and we undervalue that God often works in ordinary ways. We, we, we make ourselves so impressed by the extraordinary that we neglect the ordinary. And our confession in the chapter on God's providence teaches that our sovereign God through his works of providence often works through ordinary and mundane ways. Matter of fact, another way to put it is that God loves to work through ordinary and mundane ways. God isn't always parting the Red Sea. God isn't always stopping the sun in the middle of the sky. God isn't always supernaturally defeating other armies and our enemies. God isn't most glorified through the extraordinary. He is just as glorified in the normal mundane ways. So as impressed as we are by stories about parting of the Red Sea, the raising of the dead, the stopping of the sun, it is still just as glorious, God is still just as glorious in a normal Christian family. Where the father and mother love Jesus first and most so they can love each other best and who love their children and show their love for God and their family by dedicating themselves to the task of every Sunday morning getting their family up and ready and taking them to church for Sunday school and taking them to worship, of leading their family in prayer and Bible study. God is glorified through the normal, mundane, ordinary Christian family through the normal Christian church, through the normal Christian. God is just as glorified in the ordinary as he is in the, in, in the extraordinary. Because here's the thing for most of us, that's how he's worked in our lives. Let's be honest. We're a bunch of boring people. I love you. But we're, 
in a sense, we're just normal, boring people, right? We just get up and we live our lives and we go through and we do our things. And that's wonderful. Because how has God worked through that? God has worked through his ordinary means. Getting up every Sunday and going to church. Being involved with Bible studies. Being involved with Sunday school. Being involved with youth group. Going up to, to Bob Clark and doing sort of things. God works through those normal, ordinary ways. And we should be just as impressed that God does that as he does the extraordinary. Yet we find that God in his perfect will does at times choose to work through extraordinary means. It's a part of the history of our nation, even of our church. We have two great awakenings in our history. And we think of of men such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who God used in mighty ways. And God worked in extraordinary ways during those times, ways that still reverberate to this day. Part of history of our church comes from the work of the Great Awakenings. Part of history of our church comes from the way God worked revival in Scotland. These works that still reverberate to this day. As we see in the book of Acts, Jesus promises to send his spirit to do what? To revive his church, to reform his church, to bring an awakening. Because the Holy Spirit is the instrument of any revival. If there's an awakening, if there's a renewal, or there's a reformation, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. So this extraordinary work of God can only take place through a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit. So yes, God most often works in the ordinary, and he is just as glorified in that, but there are times he chooses to work in the extraordinary as well. And so our example we're going to look at this morning for this comes from the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings uh, 22 and 23. We'll read bits and pieces of it. But if you're not familiar with that story, I highly encourage you to take time this afternoon uh, to read through it. So you can kind of fill in some of the pieces that we're not going to have a chance to fill in this morning. But what this, this story tells us is that the nation of Judah was in a bad spiritual state. Uh, the nation of Israel had been split into a northern and southern kingdom, and the nation of Judah was in a bad spiritual place. They had had good years under the leadership of King Hezekiah. Then King Manasseh comes to the throne. He's a wicked man. He's a wicked king. And because of this, the land and the people suffer. After Manasseh comes his son Amon who was more wicked than his father. Listen to what it said here. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, has done. He walked in all the ways in which his father walked and he served the the idols that his father served and he worshiped them. So this is not a good time for God's people. They're not being led by godly leaders. They're not being encouraged in godly ways. There's very little evidence of grace and mercy and love and joy. It was bleak. God's people were suffering. God's people were languishing. They needed something. And there's this great phrase in Scripture. And it's only two words. And the two words are, but God. What does that mean? When we see it in in, in the Bible and it says, but God, what does that mean? Well, usually it means this. Things are not going well. People are suffering. 
that things are not going well spiritually, but God. But God has noticed. And God is going to intervene in a way only he can in order to help his people, to guide his people, to show his people the glory of who he is. And that is what's happening here. But God, by a sovereign, surprising work of his spirit, is going to bring reformation, revival to his people. He's going to bring new life into them during this spiritually bleak time. And so if we wanted to kind of give a phrase for what a revival reformation is, we could say, but God, things were not going well. They were bleak. They were not where they should be. But God noticed. And God showed favor and mercy and grace by sending his spirit to revive them. And so as we look at this God-given renewal in Judah, we'll find that what happens here is what happens with all true revival. Revival is marked by five distinguishing characteristics that, characteristics that were true then and are true now. So as we talked about in Sunday school, if you like to take notes, here there are five characteristics that help us determine whether it's a true movement of the Holy Spirit or is it just a charade? Is it a work of man? Is it to put man up instead of God? Well, the first mark, what we would say is the most important mark in revival is that there is a rediscovery of the word of God. Every revival, every reformation, every awakening begins with a rediscovery of the word of God. And what sparks this in this story is repair work. King Josiah is on the throne and he commands that money be given that the temple of the Lord be repaired. So the work gets going. The workmen come in. They're doing stonework. Uh, they're looking at the molding. They talk to the decorating committee about the color of carpet and the color of paint. They're going through all the repair work. One of the workmen goes into the closet, and in the closet, shoved away in a corner, is a copy of the Word of God. And because it's been so long since they've had godly leadership, the workmen take out and look at it, and we go, we think we know what this is, but we're not very sure. So what do you do when you find something in church you're not sure about? You take it to the pastor. Pastor, what is this? So that's what they do. They take it to the great high priest. Hey, great high priest, what is this? He goes, oh, this is interesting. I've got to get this to the king. So the great high priest takes it to the, to the king's secretary. King's secretary looks at this and goes, King Josiah needs to know about this. So he goes in. The secretary goes in, tells King Josiah about it. And King Josiah says, read it to me. So the secretary begins to read God's law to the king. And King Josiah is struck by it, struck by it to the point of conviction and repentance. This wasn't just merely a, a history lesson or, or an interesting pamphlet shoved aside. The, 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 the book of the law of God had been rediscovered. And it's bringing revival to the king. And through the king, it's bringing revival to the people. Listen so what we're told in 2 Kings is the result of them rediscovering the word of God. King Josiah says, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers 
did not obey the words of this book to do all according to as written concerning us. And so the king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord that he would walk after the Lord. He would keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, that he would perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. So he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Helakai, the priest, found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So this is true conviction. This isn't, this isn't smoke and mirrors, right? This isn't, this isn't entertainment, right? This isn't some, some sort of entertainment that has some, some Jesus sprinkled in it. This isn't just a bunch of warm fuzzies that make us feel good about ourselves when we occasionally hold Jesus' hand and we kind of skip through life together. No, this is the word of God striking to the very heart of the leader and he turns and looks at his people and he says, you need this. We are going to fall under the wrath of God because we have disobeyed this word. You need this. I need this. Josiah is saying, what does it say? What do we need to do? Give it to me straight. If we're going to be a people of the book, then give it to me straight. And so what we find is that true revival will always be Bible saturated. It's not about emotion. It's not about making us feel good. It's not that, like I said, the warm fuzzies, we just kind of float along through life. No, we're told over and over again in Scripture and in the history of church that a true revival, a God-given revival, brings a fervor for God's Word. So that we will live and feel and sing and pray and work and worship according to the Word of God. That's how we will know true revival is Bible saturated. Preachers will preach with greater unction as they preach from the Bible. Parents will instruct their children in the truth of God's word. At social settings, conversation will be about sports and what's going on and weather, but it will often turn to discussion about the scriptures. People of all ages, from the oldest to youngest, will hunger to read God's word, to memorize it, to study it. God's people long to hear good preaching. They want to read good books. There will be renewed confidence in and desire for and obedience to every jot and tittle of scripture. What do we long for? How we want to be revived? is that we will rediscover God's word in such a way it will saturate every part of us. That's revival. And that saturation leads to the second mark of true revival, and that is a restored sense of the fear of God. I think one of the saddest characteristics of our day and age in the world and in the church is how little fear we have of God. And I'm not talking about you know, horror movie fear. I'm talking about reverence and respect. The world doesn't fear the Lord. And we look around the church 
And I would say the church is just as guilty as not fearing the Lord. Look at the way, look at the way things are done. Look at the way, we'll look, we'll look at things that are being taught. Look at, look at things that are being supported. We wonder why we look at our world around us and we say it's going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe it's because the church's handbasket is further along that path to hell than the world's is. And so what's needed is this restored sense of the fear of God. Listen to Josiah. The wrath of God is kindled against us, and rightly so. He will not look on sin lightly, and our sins have been very great. We have provoked his anger. When's the last time you've thought that about yourself? God does not look on my sin lightly, and my sins have been very great. And I'm afraid I have provoked his anger. That's the words of Josiah. Those are the words of a man who has been shaken to the core of his being. What, they, what, the, what the workers found and brought to him was the book of Deuteronomy. And what do we find in the book of Deuteronomy? It's the book of the law. It's the Ten Commandments. It's all the rules codified for God's people. So it may be well what struck Josiah were these words. Take care. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And, made, and you made a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Josiah is taking God's word seriously because he now takes God seriously. He understands that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When true revival comes, God draws near. And the nearness of his presence produces profound reverence and awe. So people are, are changed by the nearness of God. R.C. Sproul has a wonderful testimony to this that he describes in the opening chapters of his book, The Holiness of God. But whether a person is converted for the first time or, or they're brought back to God again new way, true revival, uh, in true revival, sinners are made freshly aware of the holiness of God. They fear God and they long to no longer provoke his anger. And that leads to the third mark. True revival is a return to God through confession and repentance. See, true revival means the changes of our, a change of our desires from, from sinful to, to godly. We understand, hopefully we understand by this point, that repentance is not just simply saying, I'm sorry. Because if, if, if you keep on offending somebody in your life with the same thing over and over again, you go back to them every time you go, I'm sorry, but you do it over again and over and over and over again, at some point, they're going to look at you and go, but you're not sorry. And we would feel the same way if somebody kept on sinning against us and they come back to us every time and say, I'm sorry, but they kept on doing it over and over again, but you're not sorry. See, true repentance is not only about turning away from the ugliness of sin, but turning to God for mercy. Repentance is we turn from sin and turn to God. And confession is when we stand before a holy God and we are humiliated and ashamed by our sins. So we confess these sins so we can repent of them. Revival is a return to God through confession and repentance because we're taking our sins seriously and we're taking God seriously. At least to the fourth mark. Renewed spiritual commitment and accountability. When God brings revival, 
his people say to each other, it's time for us to recommit to our God. This is done individually, but it's also done at the church level. We are renewed in spiritual commitment and accountability. We want ourselves to be committed and accountable, and we want those around us as well to be committed and accountable in the same way. Revival brings desire for us to be committed to God, both personally and corporately as the church. And this leads to the last mark. True revival is marked by renewal of true piety, which means people start to live like they profess. That may be one of the most profound things we hear this morning. That people start to live like they profess. As we said before, we live in Winsboro. Pretty much everybody I have met in Winsboro professes to be a Christian. But not everybody has lived like a Christian. And we're not talking about perfection. But we're talking about commitments. We're not talking about sinlessness. But we're talking about dying to sin. People start to live like they profess. Instead of blending in with the world around them, they start to stand out from the world. There's no doubting about where they stand. You don't look at them and scratch your head and go, are they or aren't they? They say they go to Bethel ARP every Sunday, but I've never met a more drunk, more coarse person on Friday than I've met with this person right here. I've never met a more rude person than that person from Bethel ARP. There's no doubting about where they stand. They've returned to God. They've reformed their ways. They're now being, they're now pursuing faithfulness to God's word, not faithfulness to the world around them. There's a decisive break with their sinful ways of the past, and there's an eagerness to obey the word of God in the present. We see that with Josiah. What's he do? As soon as he's convicted, he goes, take down the shrines, the altars, the high places, and the false gods. He doesn't wait for permission. He doesn't say, let's form a committee, and let's see which plaque was on there, by which family gave this, to see if we need to get rid of it or not. He, he, he looked at all the bad things and says, we need to get rid of it and we need to bring back all the good things. He reinstitutes the Passover. See, in revival, God cultivates a new hatred for sin and a new hunger for righteousness as people long to live for him and not for the world. So revival isn't about an outpouring of emotions. It isn't about running around like a chicken with his head cut off and screaming and crying. Is marked by a rediscovery of the Word of God, a restored sense of the fear of God, a return to God through confession and repentance, a renewed spiritual commitment as God's people, a reformation of true piety, all done through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. So what part do we play in this? We'll end with this. We pray for it. We can't do this, but we can pray for it. And you know what we can do? We can start reading God's word. We can start longing to fear him. We can confess of our sins and repent of them. We can renew our commitments as people. We can live better lives. And maybe then God will breathe his spirit unto us in such a way that we look back and go, God revived us through his spirit. And here's the glory of all this. 
This can be done even for frozen, chosen Presbyterians. There's a testimony of a Reformed Presbyterian church in eastern North Carolina. They were born from hardy Scot-Irish Presbyterian and Puritan stock. And one Lord's Day, as they prayed for revival, the Spirit descended upon that church in such a tangible way that every person from the pastor to the person to the congregant and the back pew ended up on their faces, on their hands and knees, their faces to the ground, weeping in the face of the holiness of God and the work of the Spirit and the grace of the Son. And it is my prayer that God would do the same thing for me and for you, for us as Bethel, for our community, that he would revive us once again. Let's pray.